just Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol was the guy who was the creative behind the Campbell's Soup label. So if you've seen a Campbell's Soup label, you've seen at least something designed by Andy Warhol. He once said, I am a deeply superficial person, which is what kind of statement? It's an oxymoron. Deeply superficial. To be superficial is to be shallow. So to be deeply superficial, that's an oxymoron. It's, a, it's an apparent contradiction. And we use oxymorons a lot in everyday language. Here's just a, you know, a sampling of the most obvious. One we hear a lot about in this part of the country, the Great Depression. How is that so great, this time of depression? All right, one that uh, you might find tasty, jumbo shrimp. Well, if they're shrimpy, how are they jumbo? One that we've become very familiar with through the Renew campaign, accurate estimate. (laughs) Tell us about that. (laughs) Clearly confused. So which is it? Clear or confused? Act naturally. So act or be natural? Boneless ribs. Well, by definition, but they're still delicious, right? Or how about saying, hey, that's pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. Is that possible? Or when you tell your kids, this is your only choice. (laughs) Well, then it's not, right? It's not a choice. Or a minor miracle, as if that is a thing. Or maybe when you were dating your future spouse, and you said, I can't wait to be alone together. But how? How can you be alone if you're together? Or, hey, put these names in random order. So then not in order? Or ran- I, ugh, I, can't, I can't make those two things come together. Man, that is awfully good. Can it be both? Or my wife's favorite, cheerleading scholarship. Cheerleading scholarship. How do those two things happen? I don't know. You're a little more responsive than the first service crowd at Spring Forward Sunday, so they were a little slow on the uptake. So I appreciate your laughs and your groans. But I bring up oxymorons because we see in this morning's passage two words up against each other that seem to contradict. All right, we're going to see if you can pick them out. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 4 through 10 together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes these words. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading of his holy and errant word. Did you see it? What was it? What was the oxymoron? Living stone. A stone is the least alive thing imaginable. It doesn't breathe or communicate. It doesn't move. It doesn't feel pain. It's not alive. Yet living stone is something we see repeated in this passage. And before we unpack the passage and see why such a term was used, let's do some review together. Let's situate this text in the broader context of the book. Peter, again, is writing to Christians in Asia Minor, mostly northern Asia Minor. And unlike many of the letters written by Paul, Peter did not plant these churches. Paul didn't plant these churches either. Most of these churches were likely started by people who had heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And so now 25 or 30 years later, they are still going, they're still believing, they're still hoping in Jesus Christ. So Peter, the closest thing they have to a spiritual father, the man who preached the gospel to them there in Acts chapter 2, he writes them a letter. And these believers in Asia Minor, these are not isolated individuals. These are not people living solitary Christian lives. No, they, they are organized and assembled into churches. The writing in the New Testament is almost universally directed and applied to churches. So this letter and most of the letters in the New Testament, they find their best application in the context of the church. So it's really good that we are studying these epistles together. The Bible can certainly be applied to your life as an individual, but there is much for us to understand and apply together as members of a local church and members, therefore, of the universal church church. And because of the faithfulness of these early Christians, because of their, their love for and their obedience to Jesus, they are way, way out of step with the culture at large. The culture around them is Roman and pagan, and it's becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, particularly as the, the 60s AD were to move along. So when Peter addresses the, these believers, He calls them exiles, elect exiles, if you look there at the start of chapter 1. So they are like the Israelites who who were conquered and exiled to places like Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. To be exiled is to exist, to live in a culture that is foreign and even hostile to your way of life, to your worldview. Does that sound familiar? Convictional Christians in America, we are nearing an exiled status. And so Peter is writing to these first century Christians, and his, his desire is that they exile well. He wants these churches to suffer well as, as persecution and chastisement comes upon them. They need hope. Otherwise, they'll just cave in and begin to accommodate the views of the dominant culture around them. And that's exactly why Peter starts his letter declaring the truths of the gospel. This letter starts with what is true about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you do not know who Jesus is and what he has done to deal with your sin problem, what he has done to give you hope, to give you a a proper and personal relationship with the Holy God, if you don't have that truth right, you'll get nothing else right. So Peter starts with a beautiful, glorious, declaration of the gospel. He roots their identity 
in the mercy of God and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes, they are exiles, but they're much, much more than that. That's why he adds that qualifier, elect exiles, and then it unpacks exactly what that means as you move through the first chapter. And then around verse 12, he begins telling them how to live. He says, if you believe these things I've told you about the gospel, if you really believe that God has saved you by his mercy, that you were born again to a living hope, that an inheritance is being kept for you in heaven, that your life is being guarded by God's power, if that's what you believe, then here's what a life that is captivated by those truths looks like. Here's how you live. And then he goes on to give them some imperatives. And the imperative or the command that we focused on in last week's message was the one found in verse 2 of chapter 2, that we are to crave the pure spiritual milk that is the word of God. That just as babies grow by taking in milk, we will grow in our salvation if we take in God's word. By the word, we'll grow. By reading it, studying it, memorizing it, listening to sermons preached on it, discussing it together, understanding how to really interpret and apply it, craving the word has to be at the top of our spiritual agenda. We all want to experience spiritual growth. But you know what? That doesn't happen by default. No one grows holier by accident. It doesn't work like that. You grow, as I said last week, you really grow three primary ways. Through suffering, through serving, or through scripture. If you want to grow, the word will take priority in your life. Church programs, they might be helpful, but they're not eternal and abiding. Spiritual gimmicks and cool small group guides, they're not enduring and imperishable. It's only the word. We don't worship the word, but we wouldn't worship without the word. You see that? And that is why the word is so important to us as believers and so important to our church. And speaking of our church, in the passage I just read, Peter shifts the emphasis of his thoughts on spiritual growth. He shifts them from addressing the individual to now addressing the corporate, the group. He shifts from the idea of growing to building, from sustenance, milk, to now foundation as he employs this stone language. And I have three points from this passage. They're there in your notes. We're going to talk about growing together, about being built on Christ, and being chosen for mercy. Growing together, built on Christ, chosen for mercy. Let's look at first growing together. Back to the oxymoron. In verse 4, Jesus is referred to as a living stone. And that's very intentional language. Peter is making a strong point, a point that does require some knowledge of the Old Testament. And if you have knowledge of the Old Testament, you know that the stone is the second most often used name for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Only lamb is used more. And so what Peter is saying here is the Messiah is not just the stone as the Old Testament puts forth. He's the living stone, which is an understanding of what? The resurrection. Jesus Christ, the stone, he is alive today. We don't just celebrate that in two weeks. He's alive today. He conquered death and the grave, and because he lives, those who trust in him will live as well. Simple word study tells us that the term used for stone, both here and also in verse 5, 
It signifies a stone that is dressed for a building rather than just like a raw boulder or a big rock. So in the ancient Near East, builders would, would quarry these huge rocks to build buildings, and that's the kind of stone that's being referred to here. And so perhaps a stone would be brought forth that the builder did not deem to be the right size or to be the right density or with straight enough angles. And so what would he do? He'd reject the stone. And that's what Israel did with Jesus. Jesus did not meet their specifications, so they rejected the stone. They rejected their Messiah. And to their shame, the stone they rejected was the chosen stone, was the precious stone. The one precious to God was disregarded by his people. But Peter doesn't stop there. Christ is the living stone, and believers in Christ, what's it say? It says, we are living stones. Peter saw the church as a living temple or a spiritual house to which God was adding to with each new believer, meaning this, each Christian, each of you, you are an essential, finely crafted, chiseled, fit-together stone that enables the whole structure to stand and fulfill its purpose. Just as Christ was a chosen stone, each of us is a carefully chosen stone. And so knowing that truth, this verse should should help us appreciate how much we need each other as Christians. You cannot build a building with a single stone. It can't be done. Maybe you could hewn out a cave that's a really big one, but you can't build a building with a single stone. God has a purpose for all of us to fulfill Together, we cannot fulfill this purpose individually. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. It doesn't work that way. The Christian who is not working in relationship with other Christians as fellow stones cannot fulfill God's complete purpose. While every Christian does have an individual purpose, we also have a corporate purpose that we can't fulfill unless we take our place in the community of uh, of Christians, in the community of believers that is the church. So as a segue to the next point, I have to point out the key verb there in these opening verses. It's found in verse 5 where it says, being built up. That's the key verb. And it's a passive voice verb, which means you are not acting, but you're being acted upon. That's passive voice. And what that means here is this. Being built up, what that means is the church is not in charge of building itself. The church is not in charge of building itself. Now, wherever did Peter get that idea? Matthew 16. Remember Matthew 16? Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, got a little play on words using Peter's name, but referencing Peter's confession, on this rock, I will build my church. So who will build the church? Jesus will build the church. What a freeing reality for a pastor to know. Jesus will build the church. And then what does he go on to say? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? The gates of hell will not prevail against it? Some say that it means the devil and his forces, they they, they can't take down the church. Is that what it means? No, it's not what it means. Our gates, our gates, offensive 
or defensive? Do people use gates as offensive weapons or to keep people from getting into their space? To keep people from getting into their space, right? So what Jesus is saying is, I will build my church and the devil will not stop me from invading his space and taking for myself whatever and whoever I want to build my church. Jesus is saying the church is on offense and the gates of hell are on defense. Doesn't matter what kind of culture you live in, doesn't matter how prevailing the wickedness around the church might seem, Jesus will build his church. He will keep going into the darkness and extracting living stones to build up and grow his temple. Read an article just in the last week about the church in Iran. You know what? It's growing. It's growing because Jesus is building the church there. He's reaching into dark places. He's moving through the gates of hell and extracting stones so that the church can there be fit together. How important this is for exiled churches to remember Jesus will build his church. Whether you're in America, whether you're in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Niger, wherever. And a building that, that is that important, that is that substantial, it must then have a sure foundation, which brings us to our second point. Built on Christ. Here, Peter gives us three features of the stone on which God will grow his people. Three features. First, and we're talking about Christ. Christ is a chosen stone. The stone God wanted to use to accomplish his purposes would be the exact right choice. God is infallible. He cannot make bad choices. He cannot be wrong about any of his purposes. The stone he chose was the right stone. Some say, well, well, why did God have to send his son to save us? Because that was exactly the right way to do it. It was the best choice. It was the only choice. The, the stone is a chosen stone. It was also a cornerstone. A cornerstone is all too important for a building. We don't really use cornerstones as much today, but in ancient times, for the building to be erected in such a way that the walls were straight and the floor was level and the roof went on right, it all hinged on that cornerstone. Which, if Christ is not the cornerstone of your life, your life will not be right. It'll be crooked and out of place. If Christ is not the cornerstone of a church, the church will not be right. If Christ is not the cornerstone of your marriage, your marriage will not be right. Ephesians 2 tells us, the foundation of the church is the word of the apostles and the prophets. That's what we're building on, as we've mentioned already. But the cornerstone, the plumb line, is Jesus Christ. Third feature of the stone, it's precious. If I had a good golem voice, I would use it right here. I don't. It's a precious stone. And precious simply means costly or of inestimable value. The material used by God to build his people into a spiritual house was the finest, most costly thing that could ever be found for all time. It was Jesus Christ. He spared no expense in building 
his church, in building his temple. Things are getting a little more detailed with the Renew project. Finishes are being finalized and picked out in a lot of, in a lot of different places in there. People are coming to me with choices and options, and I'm overwhelmed by it, and often I'm just like, well, which, which is the most economical? Which is a great way of saying, which is the cheapest, right? Well, it's this one. Okay, well, let's go with that one. That's not the heart of God. The most valuable, most glorious, most inestimable thing in existence, his son, was what he used to build his church upon, the precious stone. And if you put your trust in that stone, in Jesus Christ, it says you will not be put to shame. It may seem like people want to shame the name of Christ or, or shame those who follow him. It may seem you get, you get painted, if you're a follower of Christ, get painted as naive or, or small-minded or even bigoted today. But if you believe in Christ... If God has built his church with you, with Christ as the cornerstone, it says here, you will not be put to shame. In fact, the text says you'll be honored. What a great message for these exiled believers to hear. They were being shamed. They were being put in places of dishonor. They were being marginalized in the culture that they were living in. Peter comes along and says, no, 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 no. There's honor for you. Second half of verse 7. But for those who do not believe... They stumble. Why do they stumble? It says they refuse to submit to the word. So just as the word was used to bring new birth to those who submit and obey its commands, stumbling and offense comes to those who fail to submit to it. This was true of Israel corporately when they failed to recognize Jesus, and it's true of every individual who fails to bow a knee to Jesus. Therefore, and these seem to be hard words there at the end of verse 8. This happens as they were destined to do. And if you don't like the sound of that, if you think that's, if you think that's trying to say that, that they're not responsible, that somehow God is responsible, listen to Dr. Tom Constable. He, he succinctly explains the logic that Peter's using here. He says, God appoints those who stumble to stumble because they do not believe. Their disobedience is not what God has ordained, but the penalty of their disobedience. Stumbling is what God has ordained. And Constable arrives at that because where it says destined to do, the antecedent to that phrase in the sentence is the main verb stumbling. It's not the subordinate participle are disobedient. Therefore, what they are destined for is related to their stumbling, not their dis- disobedience. In other words, mercy rejected becomes condemnation. Mercy rejected becomes condemnation. God does not ordain our disobedience. He ordains the consequences, in this case, the stumbling. Now, he can use our disobedience. He can make good out of all things, good or evil, because he's God, but he doesn't destine one's sin and unbelief. He doesn't have to. You're already really, really good at that. You don't need help with unbelief. You do that all by yourself. But the consequences are fixed and carried forth by the plan of God. Now let's go to the last two verses. Because there's lots of encouragement here in these last two verses. Lots of indicatives for us to pin our hopes on. 
Now, lest we think that the greatest enemies to the church are found outside the church with the persecutors and the mockers and the atheists, Peter lands the plane of this passage, I think, on a very important runway. In his closing, Peter is reminding them that the enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. Your sinful heart is working against you a whole lot harder than your neighbor who might believe in evolution. Do you realize that? I often tell this to parents who, who, who are seeking to, to morally sanitize every environment that their children is in, are, are, are found in. These parents who go to great lengths to ensure that their, that their child never bumps into anything worldly, I tell them, you can Christianize and sanitize their environment, but the biggest evil in your child's life is their heart. What are you going to do with that? What are you doing with that? Ask yourself about yourself personally. Which is why Peter returns in these last two comments again to the believer's identity. The believer's identity. As Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors, points out, he says we're all prone to to, to the danger of, of identity amnesia or gospel amnesia. That in the press of life, in the press of family, in the press of education, in the press of career, in the press of all your friendships, in the press of all the things that you're doing just to keep your life moving, you forget who you are. You forget who you are in Christ. And the great danger in identity amnesia is that it leads to identity replacement. That if you're not getting your identity vertically the way that God designed, then you will seek to get it horizontally in the way that you might want it or find meaningful. So you'll turn your marriage into your identity and turn your spouse into your own personal Messiah. And when they fail you, your world falls apart. And you'll turn your parenting into an identity. And when all your children leave home, you're with out an identity and your world falls apart and we could even turn our problems into identities some will say i'm depressed as if it's an identity and i don't want to downplay the seriousness of depression but depression is not an identity it's an experience and if you turn it into an identity it will really really hurt you And so Peter, he keeps returning, he keeps hammering this issue again and again as he's talking to these people who are in suffering and in exile. And he says to them, first, you're a chosen race. Quite apart from your own ability, quite apart from your own achievement, you have been chosen by the grace of God to be a part of a new spiritual race. And I think Peter uses the term race because one of the most fundamental forms of of identity is racial identity. And just as God chose the Israelites from amongst all peoples to be his chosen race, he has chosen believers in Jesus to be a race of his own. And it's not because there's something really neat and really super spiritual about you. No, 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 no. It's never worked that way. If you go back to Abraham, what was Abraham? He wasn't special. He was an idolater. He wasn't seeking God, but God chose him to be a patriarch of a new race. Who were the Israelites when God chose them? They were nothing. They were slaves, 
such were we when God shows us slaves to sin. So what chosen race means is that the great creator, the sovereign God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, has chosen to place his eternal love upon you. And it's not because of anything worthy or attractive about you. His love isn't unconditional. It's actually counter-conditional. He shouldn't love you, but he does. That's an amazing thing. And within that, you're part of a company of people that God has chosen just the same to place his love on. Wow. That's who you gather with today. That's who you gather with anytime you gather with believers a chosen race of people, loved, accepted, marked out by God. A royal priesthood, he says. And each one of these next phrases gives a little bit of nuance to what it means to be a chosen race. So these aren't four different identities. They're more like four perspectives on one identity. And royal priest means a priest to the king. And this is incredible again priesthood depicts access, access to the very presence of God. We should never grow used to the fact that we have access to God. For thousands of years, the people of God were not able to enter the presence of God. It was shut off to them. Only the priests could go into the presence of God. And when Jesus was crucified, what happened? That veil was torn so that by the cross, you can have direct unfettered access to God. You can, at any moment, walk into the presence of God. You live in the very presence of Almighty God. But what is it that priests did that we can now transfer to what we are to do? Well, the priests, they made sacrifices. All day long, they made sacrifices. And so we are called to a life of sacrifice. A life where we willingly offer up our gifts as those who have led us did so today. We offer up our gifts and our possessions and our strength and our energy and our resources and our relationships and our situations. We offer those up for the service of the God who is our great king. To be a priest is to live sacrificially. You offer up your friendships to him with the hope that somehow, some way, your friendships could be used for his purposes. You offer up your children to God, realizing that they don't belong to you. They're his, and that, that you want to not use them for your own purposes, but to see them used for his purposes. You, you offer up your money to the Lord. When you put money in the offering plate, you're giving to God what already belongs to God. It's his money. Giving it to him is a recognition of that. You're not clinging to it as if it's something you own. You recognize that it belongs to God. If you're his priest, you've been called to a daily life of sacrifice. What are you sacrificing, priests? A holy nation. Again, a reinforcement of identity. We've been separated out by God to be his special people. Set apart is another way of referring to holiness. Just as Israel was to be a contrast society amidst pagan nations, the church, we are to be a contrast society in the midst of ungodliness. A holy nation. You know, when you go on a mission trip, what happens when you go on a mission trip? You have this almost immediate kinship 
with the nationals that you begin to interact with that are believers. I don't care if you're in Niger or Peru or Mexico or Nicaragua or India. When you encounter someone who believes in Jesus, there's kinship there. There's immediate connection there. There's love there. Why? Because you're of the same nation. Now, geopolitically, different nations. Spiritually, same nation. Co-citizens. Then he says, you're a people for God's own possession. It's really hard to capture the power of these, of these words, but I'll say this. God, he has willingly reached out, and he has, he has taken you as his own, and he has drawn you close to his heart, and he has said, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. God says, You may never experience human success, but you're mine. You may be living in a broken body that's restricting you physically, but you're mine. You may not be surrounded by just a huge group of friends, but you're mine. You may not have a string of accomplishments that you can be proud of and prop up and show to others, but you're you're mine. I have taken you as my own. You're mine. You don't need to be anybody else's. You're mine. And so when you're facing the unexpected and when you're facing disappointment, this is the identity of that you preach to yourself, that you're a part of a chosen race, that you're a part of a royal priesthood, that you're a part of a holy nation, that you belong to God as his special possession. And then you live your life out of that wonderful identity. And if you understand your identity, here's what happens. You'll get on mission. This is what's next. It says that. Anytime it says that, a a purpose statement's about to happen. All this is going on. All this is true so that this is what you're to do with it. You might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's given you identity, this glorious identity that we've looked at. And he's he's called you to, to, to a mission so that you proclaim the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are called to then call. We're called out by God to call others, to point again and again and again to the glory of Christ who is our Savior. We don't offer a lost world a system, a system of redemption. No, we offer a lost world a Redeemer. And Peter says the way you point to his excellencies is by telling your story. Is by saying, this is how it happened to me. Telling the story anytime you can of how this Redeemer called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Folks, don't only talk about Jesus as an idea. Root the gospel in a living story that is your own. Why do you think our church is so encouraged by the testimonies that, that are offered up here anytime we do membership? It's because the truth that we so care about gets applied to someone's story. And it's beautiful. Here's the final thing in the passage. If you're going to live out your amazing identity, if you're going to be a part of that mission that you've been called to, you have to remember this last, this last couple of sentences. Remember that, that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. I want to end this way. Maybe the most significant danger in the Christian life is forgetting the gospel. Forgetting the gospel. Do the truths of the gospel live in the interior of your life, in the private moments of your life? Does the gospel find application in your everyday? Student pilot, does the gospel form the way you interact with your instructors? Does it, does it inform the way you interact with your fellow students? Husband, does the gospel form the way you speak and relate to your wife? Wife, does the gospel form the way you relate to your husband? Does the gospel form what you're willing to look at on the computer Does the gospel form how you respond when something really disappointing happens to you? Does the gospel form the way you move through sickness and ill health? Does the gospel form the hopes and the dreams you have for your life? Does the gospel, does it form the way you think about money and your possessions? Is your life driven and shaped by the gospel? Are you continually remembering that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God? Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you know what? The mercy has changed everything about you and everything related to you. Or are you good at forgetting? Gospel amnesia, it's an oxymoron. Because something so rich and so wonderful, and with such far-reaching implications, it cannot be forgotten. Which is why we keep coming back to it. We keep coming back to it. If you're here, if you're in this place, if you're part of this body, we will not let you forget the gospel. If you've come here today and you, you've never responded to the gospel, you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've never really gone all the way in being drawn into his marvelous light, Lay hold of this identity today. Put your deadly doing down. Put your sin away. Repent and trust in the work of Christ. It doesn't require anything of you. It requires trust in the one who did it all for you. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much here in this passage, and I just pray that these people would go back to it in the weeks to come and just draw out more and more of its truth. Thank you for what we're able to to hit on today. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just illuminate more of this to those who are sitting here. I pray that if someone who doesn't know you is here, Lord, that today their identity would change because of you calling them out. Lord, I thank you for the way you're building the church globally and even locally here. Lord, we recognize that that is the work of Jesus. We're putting all our hopes on him today. It's in his name. Amen. Mark.